joining us in the room today. Thank you so much for being here. It's always good to be able to see you. If you're joining us online today, uh, we appreciate that as well. Or over at our Westside campus, we're glad to have you with us today. And uh, many of you might know, because you opened that program, and there's a little uh, insert that has a bulletin outline you can fill out. If you're a geek and like to do it electronically, if you have uh, the, the Version Bible app, you can click on Events. And then type in Academy Christian, and you can follow along electronically if you would like uh, to do that today. Have you ever been around someone where no matter what you tell them about yourself, they feel obliged to tell you something bigger or better that's happened to them or that they've accomplished in life? Ever know somebody like that? It's called one-upmanship, and it's behavior where someone tries to gain an advantage by doing or saying or having bigger or better things than someone else. And we can all get trapped into that. Sometimes I, I think I could get trapped into it. You know, I like to climb peaks around Colorado Springs or out around Colorado. But if someone say, hey, what have you climbed? He said, do you know, I actually got to climb Kilimanjaro uh, over in Africa, the tallest peak on the continent of Africa, 19,342 feet tall. And, you know, I think that's pretty good. But I remember when I was standing on the top of Kilimanjaro and then recognizing uh, that Everest is two miles higher than that. And a lot more people have climbed uh, uh, Everest even now. There's even a long line. And I couldn't, I couldn't understand. I have a friend of mine who was a missionary over in Tanzania for 17 years. And uh, I asked him, Scott, are you ever going to climb Kilimanjaro? And he's like, no, no way, I don't want to climb that. So the whole time he wasn't there and finally said, Scott, why don't you want to climb Kilimanjaro? He said, Brian, why on earth would I want to climb a mountain that starts with Kiliman? <laughs> I, I had to say, well, yeah, that probably would be a good reason. Well, when, you, when you're a four-star admiral in the Navy in charge of special operations, you're naturally going to have an opportunity to interact with people who've done some amazing things. And so it was really no surprise when Admiral Bill McRaven was asked to speak at a private dinner hosted by Dr. Kenneth Cooper, a famed exercise cardiologist who literally inspired a fitness revolution in the late 60s when his book Aerobics was published. Pretty well known now, but it was brand new back then. Well, Dr. Cooper invited Admiral Bill McRaven, a Navy SEAL, to address his Cooper Institute in Dallas. And that evening, seated across the table from him were, of course, Dr. Cooper and his wife, Millie. And then next to him on his right sat Roger Staubach, the Hall of Fame quarterback for the Dallas Cowboys, and his wife, Mary Ann. And then on his left, there was this older gentleman and his wife. Uh, whose last name Bill had missed, uh, but all he knew was that his first name was Charlie. Well, after some brief introductory remarks, Bill learned that Charlie served in the Air Force, but would only tell Bill that he had just been a pilot. Well, when asked about his flying experience, he actually stated, oh, I, I've flown a little bit of this and I've flown a little bit of that. And when McRaven suggested, well, then that might make you a man of many talents, Charlie just kind of laughed at himself, responding, or a guy that couldn't keep a job. Well, over the course of the evening, the admiral discovered very little information about Charlie. Because Charlie seemed to be more interested in learning about Bill and his life and his family. And he'd been so impressed that Bill and his wife had been married for 40 years, even though it appeared that he and his wife had been married even much longer by the time dessert arrived, Bill felt like he and Charlie could easily become good friends. 
And even though Charlie's genuine personality and interest in Bill and his family built an almost instant rapport, (laughs) still over an hour into sitting at dinner with him and conversing, Bill had yet to catch his last name. Well, after the meal was over, as they walked down the stairway toward the foyer, Roger Staubach caught up with Bill and remarked, hey, it looked like you and Charlie had a great conversation. And Bill said, yes, he's a wonderful guy. And that's when Roger Staubach queried him and said, you know, I wonder what it must have been like. And uh, Bill said, what do you mean? And Roger said, I mean the walk on the moon. I mean, think of it. In the history of the world, only 12 men have ever done that. I'm sorry, Roger, Bill said. What are you talking about? He said, I'm talking about Charlie, Charlie Duke. And then Roger laughed and said, you don't know. Know what? Charlie Duke was the youngest man to ever walk on the moon. And Bill dropped his head in embarrassment. Of course, he thought, General Charles Duke, who after graduation from Naval Academy, transferred to the Air Force and became a test pilot. And then in 1966, was accepted into the astronaut program. And Duke was actually the voice of mission control during the first moon landing of Apollo 11. And then he served on the backup crew for the ill-fated Apollo 13, where Duke and his fellow astronauts actually worked in a simulator to try to find a solution for bringing the crew back home. But then... On April 16, 1972, Duke and John Young landed on the moon and conducted several successful rover missions. And Bill said, you know, during our entire dinner conversation, never once did he mention that small, trivial, insignificant fact that he walked on the moon. And if you're going to drop the mic, what's anybody going to say after you say, I drop on the moon, I walked on the moon? How are you going to top that one? Well, that's when Roger responded, you know, I'm really not surprised because Charlie is really a very humble man. And uh, Bill found out later that Charlie Duke's humility was hard won because, of course, after the moon landing, he became literally a national hero. And uh, all the allure that that fame and fortune brought also put a lot of stress on his marriage and his family. But all of that changed when his wife, Dottie, uh, became a Christ follower and then Charlie soon thereafter. And you know, it was their faith in Christ that taught them humility and actually helped them to realize and recognize that our greatest individual accomplishments, including walking on the moon, pale in comparison to the works of God, including not only this vastness of a universe, but also the epic story of creation and salvation. And you know that Jesus himself said in Matthew chapter 23, verse 12, for those who exalt themselves, they'll be humbled. And those who humble themselves will be exalted. And folks, that's the kind of humility that just happens to be the third expression of practical faith revealed to us in our series, Practical Faith University. I hope you recognize we're involved, we're enrolled in a 12 week semester that's not intended just to increase our knowledge, but actually learn some very practical expressions of biblical truth that can literally transform the way we live. And I would agree with Teddy Roosevelt, who said one time, a thorough knowledge of the Bible is worth more than a college education. Now, we have access to the Bible today, and the challenge is that we have far too many people who actually have plenty of Bible knowledge, but it isn't changing the way that they live. 
it's a case of what I recent, recently heard, uh, a word called infobesity, <laughs> which is too much information and not enough action. And I would have to agree what Kerry Niehoff says, where he said many Christians are about 3,000 Bible verses overweight. They've consumed far more content than they've ever worked off. Well, you know, this semester of learning at the Practical Faith University is brought to you by Romans chapter 12. And the reason we're zeroing in on this one chapter of the book of Romans is because it literally starts with the word, therefore, and then it gets really, really, really practical. And that's because Paul has arrived at a crucial point in his theological instruction. He's actually spent the first 11 chapters providing solid orthodoxy, or correct doctrine. And now it's time for him to shift to orthopraxy or the practical application of that knowledge, uh, which is how to live a life that authentically, authentically reflects our faith in God. And remember, I'm encouraging all of us to read just a chapter a day in the book of Romans through this series. If you miss a day, just start again. And, and when we get to the end, we'll have read through it probably four or five times. Now, before we jump into today's lesson, I think we probably ought to do a quick review of where we've been. So here's our lesson review. And practical truth number one that we found in verse one is that the appropriate response to Christ's sacrifice on our behalf, which included him leaving the splendor of heaven, coming to this earth, and then dying on the cross in order that he could bear the guilt of our sin, if that's true, the only appropriate response would be for us to offer ourselves as a living sacrifice to him. Then last week, practical truth number two came from verse two, uh, and the practical truth is that the mind is a battlefield that needs to be constantly renewed. And that's because there really is a clear path that God wants our thinking to go down. But it's always being just a little bit skewed toward the path that Satan would like our thoughts to go down. And all of which has a lot to do with what you and I think about ourselves in comparison with others. And I think it's why in his very next thought, Paul addresses a third practical truth that is found in Romans 12, chapter 3. And we're also adding on verse part of verse 16 because it says basically the same thing. Uh, read that along with me, either in your own Bibles, um, on your device, or in the sermon notes. Here's what he wrote. He said, For by the grace given to me, I'm going to say to every, every one of you, Do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith that God has distributed to each of you. And then Paul gets even more practical in verse 16 where he says, hey, don't be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Don't be conceited. Now, I've got to say that that is actually a pretty amazing statement coming from someone who at one time was a very prominent and very powerful Pharisee. And I think it actually represents the transforming power of the grace of God. And literally what it showcases is what I would call the renovation of a notorious narcissist. Now that's how Saul the Pharisee, who we know as Paul the Apostle, could have easily been described before he met Christ and experienced the grace of God. Now, you know, it's pretty clear that many of the Pharisees in Jesus' day appeared to be entirely self-absorbed 
At least Jesus seems to say as much in Luke chapter 20, verse 46. He says, beware of the teachers of the law. Many of them, most of them were actually Pharisees. He said, beware of them because these guys like to walk around in flowing robes. And the longer the robe, the more important the guy was. And they love to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and to have the most important seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at the banquets. And it was all that type of spiritual elitism and pride that led Paul, who became, or Saul, who became Paul, to commit some heinous acts against innocent people to the point that he would later describe himself in the following way back in his previous state. In 1 Timothy 1, he says, you know, even though I was once, I was a blasphemer. I was a persecutor. I, I was a violent man. And folks, that behavior was the result of the prideful way that Paul had lived his life based on how highly he thought of himself. And honestly, he thought highly of himself for some good reasons, especially when you review Paul's religious resume. His resume was pretty awesome. It's actually presented to us in his letter to the church in Philippi as he tries to explain the transformation that had taken place in him following his encounter with Christ. You know, he basically, he was saying that before he met Christ, he had a lot to brag about, a lot that he could brag on. And so in Philippians chapter 3, verses 5 and 6, here's his resume. Hey, I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. In regard to the law, I was a Pharisee. As for zeal, I was persecuting the church. As for righteousness based on the law, I was faultless. I mean, you know what Paul's saying there? He says, man, I, I, I was the cream of the crop. I was the apex of my contemporaries. It didn't get any better than me. <laughs> and notice he says he was circumcised on the eighth day. You know what that meant? It meant that he had the benefit of growing up in a religiously orthodox home. He was of the people of Israel, better known at least in the Jewish community as God's chosen people. He was of the tribe of Benjamin, one of the most highly favored tribes amongst the 12. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews, so top of his class, probably valedictorian. In regard to the law, he was a Pharisee, the most respected and privileged religious class. As for zeal, persecuting the church, he was zealous enough to do whatever it took to eliminate the competition. And as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. In other words, he represented religious perfection. But you know, something happened that transformed Saul from a very self-righteous, self-serving, indiscriminate religious zealot into someone who all of a sudden became humbly sold out to the cause of Christ. And the only thing that has the power to provide that kind of transformation in a person's life is the grace of God. And that's actually what Paul asserts. Because remember what he said in verse 3? He says, you know, for by the grace given to me. And he starts there because Paul was about to share what he believed was the transforming power of grace because it really, really worked on him. And you got to know that when grace defines you, it also refines you. It changes you. You can't live in grace without living differently than you did before. 
And Paul again makes that clear in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, but by the grace of God, that's why I am what I am. And his grace to me was not without effect. It changed my life. It changed him so much that he had been a man who before grace was hell-bent on sending people to hell and now consumed with making sure that as many people as possible had the opportunity to go to heaven. And you know, the need for grace really is the great equalizer among all of us human beings. Now, I'm kind of wondering today, how many of you have ever been to the Grand Canyon in in person? I mean, it's amazing. A number of years ago, Diane and I had an opportunity to go there, and we're standing kind of near the, the rim, and I thought we were standing pretty far back from the edge of the rim, but as Diane was standing there looking into the canyon, I thought, it'd be kind of fun to come up and just kind of give her a little nudge. And so I did. And she let me know right away I should never do that again. And I will not ever do that again. But as an illustration, what what would it be like if we were to offer a jumping across the Grand Canyon competition? Can you imagine somebody walking around talking smack and saying, Hey, I'm better jumping across the Grand Canyon than you are. Because, you know, some of us might jump farther than others, but I'm pretty sure none of us are getting across. We would fall short. You know, that's what the Apostle Paul actually said was true of us when it came to us getting to God on our own. In Romans chapter 3, he said, you know, there's no difference between Jew and Gentile because we all have sinned. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. And we are all justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ. Folks, when you start comparing yourself to other people, I can guarantee you that if you want to, you can find people that are worse than you. But I can guarantee you can also find people that are better than you. But you can never find anyone who God loves more or less than he loves you. And all this means is that you're never good enough to not need grace. None of us are ever good enough to not need grace. And when Paul recognized that it was the grace of God offered through Christ that alone could save him from his sin, folks, it eradicated all of that pride and put an end to his narcissism while replacing it with this humble dependence on Christ and a very, very different perspective on other people. So I want to ask you a question this morning. How would you describe how the grace of God has changed you? Now, I want you to know that Paul has a suggestion. He offers a very practical one in verse 3. Remember what he said? In light of the grace I've received, don't think of yourself more highly than you ought. And one of the ways that we arrive there is by understanding that we will never be good enough to not need grace. But you know, there's another side of that that is equally true. You're never bad enough to go beyond grace. And I say that because I've watched so many people who like to use their badness as an excuse for continued badness. I'm just a bad person, so I can't help myself. And to those people, Paul would say, hey, you got to think of yourself with some sober judgment. Now, the term sober judgment literally means free from intoxicating influences. 
And you know, we speak of a person who is not drunk either with alcohol or high on drugs as being sober. His or her mind is not under the control of a dangerous outside force. And when Paul thought of himself with sober judgment, here's what he said in Ephesians 3. He said, although I, I'm less than the least of all the Lord's people, God still had grace for me. Folks, you've got to know one of the schemes of Satan is to try to get us to believe that we've sunk deeper than the grace of God can reach. And so there's two extremes here. And what often ends up happening is either that we view ourselves so poorly because of what we've done that we'll never live up to the potential God has for us. Or, or we'll view ourselves so proudly so that we see ourselves as better than we really are. Now, you know, a lot of people today would like to expound on, on the virtue of healthy self-esteem. we got to have healthy self-esteem. But I'd actually like to do a little comparison between self-esteem and what we could call grace esteem. Guess which one I think is much more healthy? You see, if we describe the two, self-esteem is feeling good about yourself because of yourself. Which is okay sometimes, because sometimes you do well, Right? But how many of you would be willing to admit that every now and then you mess up? Anybody here mess up? <laughs> we all mess up. And you know, the fallacy of comparing ourselves ever to other people uh, is the fact that we mostly are seeing other people's highlight reel of their life, and then we're aware of, of the behind the scenes in our own life. And yet we'd like to think we're better than other people, which is probably true in some extent, because there are people who we are better than. But isn't it also true that there are other people who are way better than we are? See, that's why self-esteem can be problematic since it's a feeling good about yourself because of yourself. And it can easily morph into pride and conceit, both of which the Apostle Paul would like us to avoid like the plague. Because as the Apostle Peter reminds us, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble And so, you know, humbleness is really recognizing my own unworthiness and the fact that I literally deserve to spend an eternity in hell. And when I come to grips with that, then I'm not likely to have any high expectations that everybody should be celebrating how great I am because I recognize I'm actually not that great. And see, that's where Paul would end up. In in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15, notice what he writes He said, here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Whom, like, I'm I'm like the worst. I'm the worst. But he didn't have have a low self-esteem. He had a, a grace esteem. And see, grace esteem is humble because it recognizes your inherent worth is not based on your behavior, what you do. It's based on God's estimation, what he says your value is worth. And you know what, God, if he could speak to every one of us today, he would look us in the eye and say, you are definitely a sinner, (laughs) but I still love you. And that's the amazing part of grace. See, grace allows us to honestly accept both the good and the bad in us without becoming either conceited on one hand or, or, or really feeling worthless on the other. 
And again, go back to Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 1. He says, you know, but for that very reason, even though I was the worst of sinners, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience and an example for those who would believe on him and receive eternal life. Folks, grace keeps you humble, but not feeling devalued. That's the power of grace. And humility is just being honest and agreeing with God. And I so appreciate what Mother Teresa had to say. She said, if you're humble, nothing can touch you. Neither praise nor disgrace, because you know what you are. And so, folks, here is practical truth number three. Grace is the measure of our worth. And it has nothing, absolutely nothing to do with what other people say or think about us, nor our accomplishments. We're not more important or valuable or loved by God than anyone else, but we are as important and as valuable and, and as loved as God by God as anyone else. And, and with that in mind, we've got to recognize grace is the filter that provides really the most accurate perspective of yourself and then of other people. And see, since we're not better than anyone else, honestly, shouldn't we be good at being able to interact with almost anyone. And you know what? That's why Paul actually says in verse 16, be willing to associate with people of low position. See, any person who needs to bolster their self-worth tends to kind of try to avoid those on a lower social scale than themselves because that doesn't help bolster their self-esteem. And honestly, folks, this is nothing new. In fact, I would say it's always been the demise of this world. Anytime a human being puts another human being in a category of diminished value or worth compared to themselves, that's where we go wrong. And since we're talking this morning about people of low position, I got to share with you, last week I attended the gala for Life Network, where a number of people from our church family actually volunteer and we're they're making a huge impact on the live, on lives in this country, especially uh, of the unborn. You know, the unborn truly are, are the most uh, undervalued and vulnerable people in this world. But it really is, is nothing new that the speaker uh, reminded us of that night. He shared how, you know, back in the first century Rome, when they literally didn't have the, the medical capability to perform abortions, They had to wait until the child was born to learn what the gender was. And often if it was a girl, they would practice infanticide. And they would take these little baby girls out into the countryside and just leave them there to either die of exposure or to be killed by wild animals. And the Christ followers in that day looked at people differently than anyone had ever done before. And they said, you know what, that... That person has value. That's somebody made in God's image. And so they would actually go out and rescue these babies and take them home as their own. And that, that is at least part of the reason the early church had such a tremendous impact on the first century. And it was created because of the value that Christ's followers placed on all people, no matter who they were or what stage of life they were at. And that's something the world had rarely ever seen before now what's so cool about that and 
how God used that to expand the influence of the church. Because when they started killing all of these babies in the Roman households, there was a kind of a low number of females. And as those young boys began to grow up, they said, I got to find a wife who had all the girls, the Christ followers. And I think they might have said something like this. You know, you can date my daughter if you want, but you're going to have to go to church. (laughs) And they would go to church and they'd hear about Christ and they'd come to know about faith in him. Folks, pride always competes for position. While grace allows for mutual submission. Because grace means I don't need to be better than you to be loved by God. Grace frees us from comparison and competition for God's love and instead allows us to be able to say to any other person, God loves you just like he loves me. And folks, that's a message the world in the 21st century needs to hear. And in the, with the grace of Christ in our life, we, 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 we can offer that. Let's pray. God, could we just acknowledge before you this morning that our pride so many times gets in the way. Gets in the way of us really being able to accept or willing to accept your love and your grace and then being able to love other people. Or it turns into a false humility where we we just want to feel better about ourselves. All of it in ways that are never going to take us where grace would take us. God, I pray for every heart in this room that it would know your love and your grace so that it could offer your love and your grace to others. Because that's, that's how we're going to change the world. So God, do that work in us and through us today. So we ask and pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.